Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And while you're turning, let me pray for us this morning. So, Father in heaven, I pray this morning as we open up the word together that you would sow it deep into our hearts. And knowing especially that there are many things that come against us to choke out the word. Pray that you would help us that you would be with us, that this would be a powerful time, that you would encourage us with your word, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. And would you open up our hearts to be receptive? Would you overcome any obstacles this morning from hearing you clearly? Thank you for this time together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Luke chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 4 through 15. This is the parable of the sower. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Okay, this is one of Jesus' most famous parables. It is uh, recorded in Matthew as well as Mark and obviously here in Luke. And what we find is that there's a great crowd that is gathered around Jesus, which makes sense because of the authority of his teaching and because of his miracles that he's been performing. And there's a great crowd. In fact, Matthew and Mark tell us that this takes place near the Sea of Galilee. And such a huge crowd is gathered around that Jesus actually has to get in a boat. And so he teaches them on the shore from inside a boat. But the question that we should tackle first is, why does Jesus speak in parables? Okay. Why does he tell these stories? It's not simply because Jesus loved to tell a good story. There's actually a bit more to it than that. The reason when Jesus, uh, when his disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Jesus quotes from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 6, and he tells them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And so the, the parables function to both conceal and reveal the truth. 
On one hand, the parables conceal the truth from the crowd, from those whose hearts are hard and calloused, from those who trample the words of God. In other words, they hear it, but they do not grasp it. It's concealed. On the other hand are the disciples, who the word is revealed to them. The truths of the kingdom, the truths about God, are revealed to the disciples. And we understand that until God opens up the eyes, opens up the heart, that we truly cannot understand the word. And so, Jesus says, to you it has been given... That truth remains hidden until God opens the heart. But there's also another, uh, there's another aspect, another function of the parables. And that is, these parables, as Jesus would tell them, would get an immediate response. Okay? They would jolt the listeners. And as a, uh, there's a parable that was turned on me once. I shared this years ago, but it's the best example I've got on this one. So this is my freshman year in science class. My teacher was Coach Schweitzer. He was the wrestling coach. I was a basketball player. So there was already a bit of tension on that one. But I had a couple of things that, uh, uh, kind of a deadly combination. One is I lacked a great deal of wisdom. The other is I wanted to be the funny guy. So Coach Schweitzer's in the middle of his lecture, and he paused just long enough for me to throw in a sarcastic comment. And I, I thought it was hilarious. Nobody else laughed. In fact, you could kind of feel the air get sucked out of the room in that moment. And Coach Schweitzer paused, felt like forever. He looked down at me, then he looked up at the ceiling, and hand gestures and all, here's what he did. Donahoe, I once had a dog that barked when I didn't want it to, and I shot it. How does that apply to your life? immediate response. You get it. I got it. So Jesus is telling this parable to a crowd and he is looking for a response. Okay. Jesus calls out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So as he's speaking to this crowd, we understand that they would know a thing about, uh, about farming. This was a farming community. So they would understand the imagery of a man who would have a bag, who would have seed, and he would cast it out, cast the seed upon the ground. So they would understand that. And we know that this sower is Jesus, okay? But also, this sower is anyone who faithfully proclaims the gospel, the good news of God. And the emphasis... As Jesus tells them, the seed is the word of God. But the emphasis throughout this parable is on the soils. The four different types of soils representing four different hearts and various responses to the good news. We also know that this is no ordinary preacher. As Jesus is teaching them, what we understand is even a couple of chapters before in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah to this particular passage. And this is what Jesus reads. This is in in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, and then Jesus, as he's finished reading that prophecy of Isaiah, goes on to say, this is fulfilled in me. 
So what we find is Jesus is no ordinary preacher. He's not just a good teacher. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived, and Jesus has brought with him the kingdom, the kingdom of forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, the healing of the oppressed. And obviously, this would have got the crowds a bit stirred up. And so let's think for a second about who's listening in the crowd as Jesus is telling this parable. You could say there's four types of listeners corresponding to the four soils. First would be the opponents of Jesus. These were the intellectual and religious elites of the day. These are the ones who would trample the word of Jesus, and they're like the first soil. The gospel is trampled by them, and it's taken away. Also in the crowd would be those that were very curious about Jesus, but they were not committed. We could refer to them as the looky-loos, that term that stands for people who are curious about something but no intent to invest. Often it's referred to as those that will go to an open house, but there's no intent to buy. They're curious, but not committed. And they're like the second soil. Initially, they're excited about Jesus. They're excited about his teachings. They're excited about his ministry and his miracles, but they're not committed. And eventually, they wither away. And then also in this crowd is Judas and others like Judas who are part of the inner circle until the end. They're part of the church community until they're choked out. And then finally, in this crowd are also disciples, the disciples that are gathered around him and the disciples that will come to him. They are those who are far from perfect, but God has opened up their eyes and their hearts to the glory of the gospel. And so the fourth soil are those who are faithful and fruitful. And Jesus explains to his disciples, he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Okay, so what are some of the secrets that this parable reveals? Well, we have to remember that Jesus was just beginning his earthly ministry. And Jesus seemed very unimpressive to many. Okay, his words seemed small and insignificant. Jesus was proclaiming a kingdom, but his kingdom wasn't obvious to the sight. And one of the secrets of this kingdom is that this sower is good. His word is powerful, and his kingdom will flourish. One of the secrets of this parable is revealed when Jesus says, The seed on good soil will yield a hundredfold. Matthew and Mark talk about yielding uh, 30-fold and 60-fold. Now, this may be a bit foreign to us in this day, but in that day, somewhere between 5-fold and 15-fold was expected, was typical. A A hundredfold was unheard of. But Jesus is making a point about this sower that is good, this seed that is powerful, and this kingdom that is going to flourish. That Jesus brought the kingdom of God. He brought the forgiveness of sins and the healing and the the healing of the sin and brokenness in this world as far as the curse is found. And so the message and the glory of the kingdom will flourish. That's part of the secret of this parable. But there's a reality check for the disciples. The reality check is they, they shouldn't be surprised by the various responses to the gospel. 
And this is true in the first century church. It's true in our 21st century church. That there will always be various responses to this gospel. Whether it's the atheist who rejects God or the agnostic who is curious but not committed. Or it's the faithful churchgoer who also is living a double life and and threatened to be choked out. Or whether it's a disciple that is flourishing and being fruitful. There's various responses. But there's a warning here to the disciples. There's a warning to the crowd. There's a warning to us. And that is to watch your heart. To watch how you hear. Because it's very easy, Jesus says, to reject this message. It's very easy to reject the word. And so our response this morning cannot just be to relax, to fold our arms, to sit back, and to think, I've got this. I'm the fourth soil. We're good. There really is a warning. There's a sobering reality that there are really two types of people. There are those who hear the word and produce fruit, and there's everyone else. So there is a sobering warning in this passage. Now, as we dig a bit deeper into the four soils, see what I did there? Um, We have to recognize that there are always barriers to the gospel in every generation. Okay, that was true in the first century church. That's true in the 21st century church. And there's a call for each of us to be wise, to be faithful, and to be fruitful, and to understand the culture of our day. So let's look at the first soil. Jesus tells us, first in verse 5, he says, As he sowed, some seed fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And then later on, he describes more to his disciples in verse 12. He says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So here's the warning of this soil. The warning of this soil is beware of listening to the good news of God with a hard heart. I don't pretend to know the spiritual realities of exactly how Satan robs the seed from the heart. But I do know that Satan stands behind culture and in many ways is seeking to harden hearts. And some of this is through intellectual pride. One of the dangers of this soil is a hard heart because of intellectual pride. And there is an an unholy trinity of intellectual pride in our day. If we think about the Trinity, if we think about a triangle, we understand our Holy Trinity as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But there's an unholy Trinity at play in our generation. If you think of a triangle, in one of the corners, you could put naturalism. It's the philosophy that everything that we know is actually what we see. There's nothing beyond what we see. No supernatural, no transcendent, no God. And this actually contradicts God as our creator. It seeks to shove God out of the picture. But in another corner of our triangle, we could put secular humanism. Secular humanism is this philosophy that embraces human reason, and reason really with a capital R. Human reason above all else, not faith. And this would reject anything supernatural for a basis for morality. In other words, humanity can be ethical and good and moral 
apart from God, apart from religion. And sin is a dirty word. Well, this aspect of the unholy trinity counters the need for a human savior. So this seeks to push Jesus Christ out to the side. And then in the third corner, we could put pantheism. Okay? Maybe not a word that you use every day in your house. Pan meaning all theism, God. All things are God. Everything that exists is divine, according to this philosophy. So in this is no room for an infinite personal God. A God who is above us and yet draws near to us. And the, and the motto of pantheism is spiritual but not religious. And you may hear this claim a lot in our society. I'm spiritual but not religious. That's actually a pantheistic claim. It's the understanding that my spiritual life is apart from any established religion. It's apart from any church. It's apart from any doctrine. And so think about the reality of pantheism that's spiritual but not religious. In these terms, one uh, is I quote from a pantheist who says, God is frequently seen as something like the light within, or as the wisdom within, or as the higher self. Okay, do we see how that crowds out any need for the Holy Spirit to guide us? So this idea is prevalent in our culture. Just follow your heart. But Jesus is warning us here of our hearts. Right? And so... That third piece of the unholy trinity actually counters the role of the Holy Spirit that God has gifted us with to guide us to truth, to point us to Christ. And so the devil, through intellectual pride, seeks to snatch away. And the warning here is to listening to, listening to the good news of God with a hard heart. So what do we do? If we're in a conversation with those that seem to be in this first soil, it seems to be an issue of intellectual pride. First, we have to recognize as believers that the gospel in our culture is fragmented. So often there's only bits and pieces of it that are understood, and too often it's misunderstood. And so what is needed is great clarity, as well as great boldness in our culture. And as far as the clarity, this is at the Orient Center with our students. We're constantly swimming in this, and so we're helping our students to understand a framework of the great story, the meta-narrative. What does the Bible tell us? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That Here's the abbreviated version. Creation, God made it, and it is good. It is perfect. It is beautiful. The fall, Adam broke it. Sin has devastated everything, and we see the effects of it all around us. Redemption, but Christ is at work. Christ fixed it on the cross and is fixing it. And he has made the way known to where we can have a relationship with God. He is at work until the final restoration. And when I say that at times, our college students know to say, kaboom. The final restoration is the kaboom. It's the new heavens and new earth that he will return. Do we know this story? Do we love this story? Do we understand our place in this story of the framework of what God is, has, what is, God is doing in the world? And we have to remember that his word is powerful. And he calls us to be faithful. But he is the good sower and his word is powerful. His kingdom will flourish. And ultimately, God does call us to pray 
There's a couple of prayers that I love that, again, at the Oriad Center, we, we pray these often. One of them is 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And another one from Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 and 3. Pray also for us that God may open up a door uh, for us, for the word. So that prayer, that desire for the word of God to speed ahead and to be honored. And that God would be gracious to open up doors and opportunities. So we mustn't be discouraged by the first soil. Because God's kingdom is at work. But let's look at the second soil. And the second soil, Jesus tells us in verse 6, that some fell along the rock, or on the rock, and as it grew up, it, it withered away because it had no moisture. And again, later with his disciples, he explains a little more fully. He says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in times of testing, fall away. Okay, so this is the soil this, that can't really take the heat when it's tested. And so the, the warning here would be, beware of listening to the good news of God with a shallow heart. Oftentimes these are the responses that are emotional and immediate, but they really do not have long-lasting depth. And I, I think it's fitting here this morning to talk about something that I think our culture is immersed in, especially with, uh, with college age and with youth. There's this term, moralistic therapeutic deism. Matter, it doesn't necessarily matter that we understand fully that the, the words there, but that we have to get the concept. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Because it is alive and well, and many are saying, that it is the culture of the day. It's the religious culture that is even creeping in to many Christian circles. Okay. So here's the religious assumptions of moralistic therapeutic deism. First, it's a, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay. But here's the second one. Here's the moralistic part. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Okay, what's missing there is a deep biblical understanding of sin and the cross and our need of grace. The third one, here's the therapeutic parts. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Again, what's missing? What's missing is this call to holiness. And in fact, um, as research has been done on this, uh, much research has included 39% of emerging adults when asked the question of a, if you have to choose between something that's morally right and wrong, how do you decide? 39% say, at the time, whatever makes me happy. Danger. Okay, fourth point. This is deism. That God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God needs to resolve a problem. Okay. And the fifth one, good people go to heaven when they die. But the problem with moralistic, therapeutic deism that is permeating our culture is it's incredibly shallow. And when one's faith is tested, it will not withstand. And this is where I think about the beauty of our doctrines, the beauty of biblical truth. As opposed to moralistic, just being good enough, 
We have the doctrine of justification, that because of our sin, we can't be good enough. And so it is through Christ that God has declared us righteous and has accepted us in him. And against this idea of therapeutic, of whatever makes me happy, is our doctrine of sanctification. That the central goal is not happiness, but it's actually holiness. But the danger here is it is easy to walk away from the word of God when it is not convenient for our life. And we see this a lot in the realm of sexuality and sexual lifestyles. It is easy to conform the Bible to what we want as opposed to what the Bible actually teaches. Moralistic therapeutic deism breeds moral relativism. This idea of whatever makes me happy must be right. And finally, if I can speak about the deism for a second, how about the beauty of the doctrine of adoption? That as opposed to an impersonal God, that by God's grace through Christ, we are brought into the family of God with all its privileges. And the scriptures affirm this, that God knows every hair on our head. Sounds pretty personal. That we're engraved on the palm of his hands. Sounds pretty personal. So the warning here in this passage and with this seed is of listening to the good news of God with a shallow heart. And again, can I just pause and say how thankful I am for our church, for the children's ministry, the youth ministry that understand very well this moralistic therapeutic deism and are teaching our kids and are teaching our youth the truth because this is the culture that they are swimming in. Third soil. Let's move to the third soil where Jesus says, Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out. And then later on, what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 14, As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So this is the, this is the soil that hears the word, but they're choked out. They're choked out by the cares and worries of life. They're choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. They're choked out by the seduction of pleasure. And the warning here would be beware of listening to the good news of God with a divided heart. And the problem with the thorns here is that the thorns typically don't stay neutral. They grow, and they seek to choke us out. Okay, so speaking of thorns. So, my family, we moved recently to a house out in the country, about five miles outside of Lawrence. And I've got a big thorn tree in the back of my yard. And when we first took possession of the house, I thought to myself, first thing I should do is cut down that tree. But I didn't. I let the weeks go by. And in that time, that thorn tree, it's only grown bigger. It's only grown burlier. And in fact, there's a new development with it. I've noticed just recently because the grass is so tall underneath it, there's now a hornet's nest that is developed at the base of that tree. So here I am. Last week, I go out to mow. Now, there's a problem with my riding mower. Actually, there's a few problems with my riding mower, which I'll get to. One of them is that it only makes right-hand turns, okay? 
it's kind of difficult to, to mow three acres just going with right-hand turns. So I have to start in the middle of the yard and just do circles, which of course makes me look to my neighbors like the village idiot. They're like city slicker practicing for NASCAR, you know, crop circles. Um, so it just takes forever to mow. But, but, the other, but by the time I finish mowing my yard and I get to the locust tree with the big thorns, the problem is since I can only turn right, I have to have the perfect angle on it. Because if I'm angled too much to the right, I'll run into the tree and potentially the hornet's nest. So I think I've got the right angle. I'm heading to the tree, about to go around it, run out of gas. Literally, run out of gas. I'm not making this up. Two feet from the hornet's nest and right in front of the tree. So I quietly get off my mower to not disturb the hornet's nest. And I run, I grab the gas, I put gas in the tank. It's time to start it up again. But the problem is, the other piece of difficulty with my mower is I have a solenoid out, which I don't really know what that means. But thankfully, Terry Gillen taught me how to hotwire my mower. So I have to have a screwdriver in my left hand and touch the metal to these two bolts, which of course are sparking, and I'm hoping my mower doesn't blow up, while I'm looking to the right of the, because my mower's making a noxious noise to see if I'm disturbing the hornet's nest, so I'm going back and forth, and of course I'm allergic to bee stings, and I never know where my EpiPen is. So this continues for some time, because the mower won't start until I drain the battery of the mower and it's dead. And I walk away very frustrated. Do you know why I share that with you? So what's the thorn tree in your life that is growing that you should have cut out weeks ago, but it continues to grow and it threatens to choke out your faith? And if it doesn't choke out your faith, it will greatly hinder your fruitfulness. There are many things that can hinder or threaten to choke out our faith. And this is where, again, this warning of a divided heart, because what Jesus tells us is that the cares and worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for seduction, for pleasure, all of that can, uh, can come against us. And so maybe the question this morning is, what is it that you care way too much about or you worry way too much about and it hinders your love of God, your trust of God, hinders you from loving others well? Or to what degree do we have a divided heart when it comes to our money and our possessions? Paul has some great words for us in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Paul says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Commenting on this passage, John Stott says this. He says, life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. He's picking up on that idea. We came with nothing in the world, we'll leave with nothing. 
So life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. So it would be wise to travel light. We shall take nothing with us. But this is hard. This is hard in our culture. It's hard in our society because it's so difficult to be content with a simple life. And it's so easy to get caught up in consumerism. I can't tell you how many times in my own family I've had this conversation of, really, you need another pair of Nike Elite socks? Did the first six pair not satisfy your eliteness? I mean, and it's not just to pick on my kids or our kids. What about us? What are the things that we look to? Whether it's identity or for comfort or for ease or for whatever it is, these deceitfulness of riches that can cause our hearts to grow cold towards the things of the Lord. And maybe for us this morning, it's this, it's this idea that the scriptures assume that we give generously. The scriptures assume at least a 10% tithe to the things of the Lord. Do we give sacrificially? Do we give generously? Do we give cheerfully? This danger of riches or the desire for riches. And also we could talk about the seduction of pleasure that takes on so many forms. Let me just say that we must be mindful that our bodies, our body is always related to our heart. The things that we put our eyes on, it affects the heart. What we touch affects the heart. And again, this question of, what is creeping into our lives? Is there anything, any of this desire for pleasure, for seduction, that is creeping into our lives that needs to be killed? That as it continues to grow, it really will choke us out. It really will hinder our faithfulness and our fruitfulness. And this brings us to the fourth soil, the good soil. Jesus tells us, some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And then he explains that later to his disciples in verse 15. He says, as, as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So this morning, if you are confident that you're the fourth soil, we must recognize that it's only by the grace and power of God and it is really through the sacrifice of Christ. Because think about this. Um, as Jesus continues on after this parable, he will head towards Jerusalem where those who have hard hearts will mock him as a king. They'll stick a crown of thorns on his head. They will crucify him. And Hebrews tells us that it is for the joy that was set before Christ that he endured. This joy of redeeming his people. This joy of rescuing a people for his name. The sower is good. His word is powerful. And his kingdom is flourishing and will continue to flourish. And what we're called to in the midst of it is to hold fast and firm to his word. To love the word to sit under it, to love the preaching of it, to love the teaching, to love the reading of it, to meditate, to study, to love his word. 
and as well to bear fruit with patience. Two chapters later, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says this. In Luke 10, in verse 2, he sends his disciples out and he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what is the call for us? The call is that we are to pray. That we really are to pray. And as well, to be mindful that God has sent us out into the world. Monday through Saturday, we're sent out throughout the world, so to speak. We're sent out to various places of work, to various neighborhoods, to various schools, to various sporting events, and other places of recreation and play, and you name it. We're sent out with the gospel. We're sent out with the gospel. And so God calls us with our lives, the way we live our life before others, and with the precious words of the gospel of Christ to bear witness in the world. And in this parable that Jesus tells, he begins with a seed that seems so small and insignificant. And at times, maybe that feels like our life, very small and insignificant. But what God calls us to is faithfulness, that he is the good sower, that his word is powerful, his kingdom will flourish And so with our lives, the way that we live, and with the words that we speak, we can trust that our role is to seek to be faithful. It is God's role to flourish, to cause his word to flourish and to spread. And we do not know where the good soil is as we live our lives before others and as we speak the truth of the gospel. But God does. God does. And he is more than able to flourish his word in our world. And let's pray together. Father, this is our prayer. That as you send us out, would be, uh, that we would be mindful to pray. That we would seek in our conversations with others. That we would pray that you would open up a door for the word. And as we live our lives, help us to live faithfully. Help us to live with great fruit in our lives. That others, as they see us, that they would really recognize that there is something substantially different about the way we conduct our work in our house, our actions in the world. Pray that we would be faithful, that we would hold firm and fast to Christ that we would truly desire the word, that we would love the word, that we would continue to grow in the depth of the gospel. And Lord, we know that there are things that seek to choke it out, and there are struggles that we face in this morning. Knowing that there are many in here that are discouraged, I pray that you would comfort, that you would be their encouragement, and that they would cling to your word, that they would cling to you. And in particular, we pray for Madeline and Jim Van as they're grieving the death of Madeline's mother. Would you comfort, would you bring them their peace or your peace? Would you assure them of your love for them? We also pray very in a very particular way, the opportunity that we have 
to sow seeds of faithfulness with family promise. Lord, thank you for that ministry to the homeless, that they will be gathering in our church today, that they'll be with us for a week. I pray that you would do a powerful work through us and in their lives. And Lord, with, our, with the other needs of our church, Lord, that we would be faithful and thank you that you... Thank you that you have called us into a world to live faithful lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And now please stand for the benediction. And receive the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Oh, the Lord, our strength and song, highest praise to him belongs, Christ the Lord. The conquering King, your name we raise, your triumph sing. Praise the Lord, our mighty warrior. Praise the Lord, the glorious one.